I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome to Trafe, the only Jewish podcast that's considering whether to complain to WNYC about use of the term shysty in their ad copy. <laughs> Um, you played it for me earlier today, David, and I am in favor of doing that. <laughs> but putting that immediately aside, um, we have a really great show lined up for everybody today. A whole episode focused on an interview we did with Irina Clapfish. Yes. Um, Irina is a writer, a poet, an activist, a lesbian feminist, a teacher, a researcher, and a really wonderful person. Yeah, and you know, Irina was born in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, to Bundes parents. And following up on, on the suite we just did about the Jewish labor bund, it was a nice opportunity to talk a bit with Irina about the bund as well. And before we get any further here, uh, David, I think it's important to mention the fact that this was recorded about a year and a half ago. Yes, uh, this is an interview that we, uh, I think, took us about three years to set up. Uh, <laughs> many failed attempts at, you know, just technical problems, trying to send people to Irina's house with a microphone didn't quite work out. Uh, but then Irina actually ended up having plans to be about an hour and a half away from where we live, and we were able to meet up and, and spend a few hours together. And I mean, I think you might be burying the lead a little bit here um, by not mentioning the fact that this interview took place at Close Canada. Oh, yeah. So for, for people who aren't familiar, uh, Klez Canada is this week-long klezmer music and, and sort of Yiddish cultural festival or retreat uh, that happens at this uh, Jewish campground in the Laurentians, just about an hour away from Montreal. Uh, I think it's been happening for over 25 years now. And so Irina was there uh, doing a few workshops and, and participating in the retreat. Yeah, we, we talked about Klez Canada a little bit um, in the interview. What we didn't talk about, David, is the fact that I was a summer camper at uh, Camp Nebrith, where Klez Canada takes place uh, about 20 years ago. Yes, although no endorsement of Camp Nebrith on this podcast. They'll have to pay you, right, David? <laughs> Waiting for that check. No, we wouldn't take that money. <laughs> so that's your episode of Trafe for the 11th of Adar 5781. It's I'm Irina Klepfish, and I'm a writer, a poet. I just retired from teaching Jewish Women's Studies at Barnard College for 22 years, and I'm here at Clez Canada. Uh, I just gave two courses. I gave a poetry creative writing workshop, and I gave a little mini course on early Yiddish women writers in America. Well, thank, thanks so much for talking with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, so we're, we're actually just finishing up uh, a series on the Jewish Labor Bund. And so I thought we could maybe start by talking about the conference you helped organize in New York City last October. Uh, it was commemorating the 120th anniversary of the founding of the Bund. What, what was the experience like organizing that and also attending it? Well, it was a, well, it was a kind of a labor of love for me because I've been, I was raised by Bundists, uh, people who were extremely active in interwar Poland before the war. And all of them were Holocaust survivors. And it was, I feel, an enormous debt to the Bund. So there was some talk about children of Bundists, some of them, most of them, in fact, younger than me because they were 
born after the war, maybe like 10 years or so, I was interested in participating. And I also was coming off a period where I'd been really totally inactive in terms of activism. I mean, I was continuing teaching, but I had family obligations and I couldn't really be active. And I was now able to do it. And so I very much wanted to be involved in it. Um, It was sort of my way, I think, of paying tribute to the Bund and what I feel I'm indebted to from it and from the people that I knew who taught me about the Bund rather indirectly, actually, because I never really had formal lessons. And um, some of the people that were involved in organizing were Hemshech, ex-Hemshech people. It was a camp that was organized by these Bundes. I think it started in 1958. By 1958, I was entering college, so I was too old for it. But they got a real grounding in it. I mean, they got, you know, lectures and whatever, and they acted, they reenacted, in fact, many things from Skiff and Zukunft that they had in Europe. I never had that experience. And my experience was a very vicarious experience. I kind of eavesdropped on my mother's friends. I loved listening to them. It's sort of interesting. I read somewhere that um, sometimes a catastrophe like erases your memory of everything but the catastrophe itself. And though the, the Holocaust was very much memorialized and very much in the consciousness of these people, so was it the li- their life before the war. It was not something that was buried. And I was very, I don't know, I was very taken with sort of the loyalty and the energy and the commitment and the clear-eyed way they looked at things and the way, clear-eyed way that they looked at Jews. They weren't sentimental in a certain way, but they were very committed to improving Jewish life. It was very... I don't know quite what drew me as a child because I didn't start really hearing it until I came to the United States, and that was when I was eight. So that kind of continued for about the next 10 years. And so it was really by almost osmosis, kind of, and was learning about how they lived, what they did. It always sounded extremely energetic and quite, quite wonderful, and I loved the engagement of it. What was what was the uh, the turnout like to that? Uh, it was it was very. I mean, filled. I'm, I think the auditorium is four hundred, and there were people out. They they video it so that people in the lobby can see it, and I think it was live streamed as well, and that they had tons and tons of people for it. So, it was a very gratifying, um, and we worked really hard on it. And we also, I, did I send you the commemorative book? Did you see the commemorative book? Yeah. So I worked with Danny Sawyer on that. He's an academic history person who he teaches. Jewish history at Fordham University, and we worked together on on that. And that was also a wonderful, um, I mean, it's a difficult experience. We were under enormous pressure to get it done by exactly October. I mean, it was, in fact, it was sort of a nightmare. But it was definitely a labor of love on my part, and I think on Danny's as well. And I just, I don't know, I just felt it was a, it was something I wanted to pay tribute to. Um, over the years, you've, you've also been a part of different memorials and commemorations of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk briefly about your family, who were members of the Bund in Poland and who participated in the uprising. Well, um, my father's family, her, my grandparents, were really from the, I guess they were, I would say they were from the first, almost the first generation of Bundes. My father, my grandfather, Yankov Klepfish, came from a Hasidic family, and he broke with them. So 
as an adult already, he was he was a Bundist. And he was probably born, I would imagine, like around 1880, maybe 85. So he was at the very beginning. Um, my grandmother, his wife, Miriam, was Miriam Solomon. And she and uh, at least one sibling were very much Bundes. Her One of her sisters was married to a well-known Bundes, Victor Schulman, Gutta Schulman. So that was a Bundist family. My mother's family, I don't know what her parents were, if anything, but it was a large family with six children, and as I understand it, they were totally split. Two, I think, Bundes, two communists, and two Zionists, or something like that. And my mother was in the Zionist camp when she met my father, and she switched. Um, they met on a skiing trip in Zakopane, which was a place where people went to both in the summer and the winter. A lot of Zionists and socialists like Bundist organizations would take their people for sports, competitions, the Maccabee games and stuff like that. My mother was, her father died. Her father was a watchmaker. They didn't have very much money. And when he died, um, she had to go to work and she was 12. She was very literary-minded. And the important thing, that before she stopped school, um, her older siblings were very insistent, apparently, that she not go to a folk show. They wanted her to know Polish. And it was a really in- important element in her survival. It's not the only element, but it was certainly an important element in that she had impeccable Polish. She didn't have any accent. She spoke like a Pole, like a Christian Pole. And so when they married, she became a kind of Bunda, so that um, during the war, he, became, he was part of the underground, and he had a significant connection with the PPAS, the Polish Socialist Party. Um, my aunt, his sister, Aunt Gina, had, her best friend was a Polish woman, young woman, who was in the PPAS, and it was partly because of that that he ended up having some important contacts with the Pepe's. It didn't solve the problem, but it was a contact that was important. And Marisha, the friend, and her sister, um, they helped my mother and they helped my father during the war, and they were recognized as uh, righteous Gentiles. I met Marisha in 1983, which was very thrilling for me. So the socialist and the Bundist ideas were very much... um, in that, but you know, I'm born during the war, so the war is already on. He's in the underground, and I mean, he was charged with getting ammunition, and he was—he apparently didn't look that Jewish, and he, for however he could do it, he went in and out of the ghetto quite a bit. He smuggled both people and guns and ammunition into the ghetto, and eventually he developed a mixture for the Molotov cocktails. So and they started small factories in the ghetto to produce these bottles and these whatever. And when they knew that they were going to do the uprising, at least a few months ahead of time, they, he got me out as a Polish orphanage on the Aryan side in Warsaw. And I got placed there, and my mother got Aryan papers, and she got a job as a maid. And then he, you know, he, he was in the uprising, and he was killed on the second day. And my mother was on her own after that. Um, so that was the activity. I mean, and the people that I knew up in the Bronx, that I, the people I grew up with, a lot of them were involved, not all, but a lot of them were involved in some form of armed resistance. I mean, everybody was involved, and people don't realize it. 
My father got a medal for his heroism, which I think, I mean, I don't begrudge the medal, but I always feel my mother got never got the credit. She survived the last two years of the war and saved me, and she sort of never got the kind of credit, and I, I consider that resistance as well. So these people were, I mean, I grew up in a very, and took me years to realize how unusual the community was, because, I mean, I, I grew up with Vlatka Mead, who wrote on both sides of the wall. She was a courier during the war, and she became a real public figure. I knew Marek Edelman. He was with my father when he was killed. Um, I knew, you know, Bolek Ellenbogen. He was in the resistance on the Iron side. I mean, I just, to me, they were just, you know, people. I babysat for Vlatka Mead. You know? <laughs> but it was like, it took me a long time to realize, you know, exactly where these people stood in terms of history. So it was a very, I think, in certain ways, it was... It was a hard childhood in many ways, but it was also an incredibly, I feel very privileged with the kind of people I met and learned from. Um, so by the time you're eight, your mother brought you to the U.S. Yeah. Was, was there sort of a sense of disconnection when you were growing up between all these stories of struggle and loss and what everyday life was like in the Bronx? You know, it's interesting because some of the people that I, well, I lived in Sweden for three years before we came. And a lot of those same people were that I knew it later in the Bronx were also in Sweden with us. So it was, and we had sort of a communal living kind of thing. And it was interesting because I've thought a great deal about this, and I, I don't remember any talk about anything like the war or the Bund or memorials in Sweden for three years. I was eight when I left. I was going to school already. I was in first and second grade. And it was only when I came to the United States that I suddenly came across the whole, I had never, I, didn't, I don't think I even knew. I mean, I knew there was a war and I knew my father had died. My mother had said she was, he was a soldier, you know, she told me that. But I just didn't know anything. And then within days, my mother was at a memorial meeting when we arrived. We arrived early in April, and but, you know, like eight days later, she was at a meeting, um, at a memorial meeting. So... I don't think it was a disconnect. It was, in some ways, I think what it was, was a sense of a kind of envy. I've always said that I felt that my true homeland had been Poland and that I lost that, that time, that period. Um, when I wasn't romantic about it, I knew, I knew the 30s were really hard in Poland and they were hard for Jews. It wasn't that, but there was, I, so, I, I envied them having the bond and the organizations and having all that excitement and vision and something I wanted to have in my life, I think. I don't know that I consciously thought that. I knew that they were doing memory stuff rather than living it. I don't know quite how to express it. And that, that was an important part of their interactions. And it was one of the reasons I was, I didn't care if I was the only kid that evening sitting on the floor listening to them. I mean, I was just happy to do that. For them, looking back on it, none of them were really that politically active in American politics. And why that is, I don't, I, that's a whole interesting question about what happened to political activists, because they were all, it wasn't just that they were active during the war, they were all active before the war, I mean, really active and very committed. But the Bund, I mean, the Bund functioned and people went to meetings, but it wasn't like they had an impact on the rest of Jewish life in the way that the Bund did in Europe, I mean, in Poland. So 
there's been a little bit of a renewed interest in the Bund in, in the younger generations. And one piece that seems to be significant to a lot of people is the opposition to Zionism. When did Zionism first become an issue on your radar? And was it something that was present growing up in the Bronx? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was raised with a kind of, maybe not, not disparaging, but Zionism was, it was just something that was looked down on in a way. And I never really thought, I mean, I was, I was so much rooted in Buddhism that it never occurred to me to really think about Zionism very much. I didn't think about Israel very much. I know that it was an issue among her friends, and there were Bundes that ended up in Israel, which is because they couldn't, they didn't necessarily want to go there, but that's where they ended up. So there was that. And I remember uh, Monia Pat, Dr. Emmanuel Pat, who was one of the sort of pillars of the Bronx Bundes community. His father was Jacob Pat, who was an important Bundes of the previous generation. Um, went to Israel and he came back and he wrote a book called Abri Fun Israel, a letter from Israel. And I don't know what was in it because I didn't read it and I probably should, I'd be curious actually to read it now. I have a copy of it at home, but I never read it. But to me, what the, it was like a signal that it's okay. I mean, we have people there and we have to somehow, you know, we don't have to be Zionists, but we don't have to have the kind of uh, virulence maybe. I don't know what was in it, but it was a kind of capitulation, not capitulation, but acceptance that Israel existed, and in a certain way that that was over, I guess, the struggle. I'm not sure they would have phrased it that way. For me, Israel played no important role. And like I say, I mean, I longed for Poland, not for Jerusalem. And after college, I went, I took a year off. I was planning to go to graduate school. I took a year off, and I went to Europe for three months, and then I went to three months to Israel. And I worked on two kibbutzim, and I saw some friends and family friends and all this kind of stuff. And I ended up being actually quite negative from my experience there because I didn't like the way they, first of all, talked about the Holocaust. This is still pre-Eichmann trial, which changed things a lot. I was very upset about it. I mean, I was, I mean the idea of being ashamed of survivors or what happened to Jews was just appalling to me. And I'm not sure I had heard it before or what, but there was something very immediate when I did it conf- see it and confront it in Israel. I mean, it's interesting. My mother was in the Hashemah Hatzaiyah before she met my father, and my contact in Israel in terms of the kibbutzim and stuff were, in fact, via Hashemah Hatzaiyah. So I went to two kibbutzim and for Hashemah Hatzaiyah. And... Um, I just, I didn't like this attitude. I mean, they had a very arrogant attitude, I thought, to American Jews, and they told me I couldn't be a complete Jew, and how could you walk in the street with my head high? I don't know, I got a lot of junk like that. And it was very naive. I mean, looking back on it, I mean, they were doing a, you know, they were probably saying what they learned in school, you know. But it didn't go down very well with me. And so in some ways, my experience in Israel that year, 62, 63, Really, that's when I sort of started looking down on it much more than I had before. And we didn't really, I don't remember big battles around the issue. I mean, I I wasn't privy to them. My uh, complete, I mean, sort of to my horror of that I really knew nothing. I mean, I vaguely knew. It's not, I'm not a fairly well-read newspaper person, but I really didn't think very much. 
until I came out and I became active and then suddenly you like you couldn't be in any lefty feminist lesbian movement without dealing with Israel and I thought oh they why do I have to focus on this <laughs> and that's when I first started having to really think about I was sort of and that's late that's I'm talking about late 70s now you know I'm born in, in 41 so by the late 70s I'm like 35 36 already and I really haven't <laughs> And also, I haven't really thought much about Bund. I mean, that's when I first started reading about Bund history, because though I understood the Bundist principles, and I understood the motivation, and I understood the intent, so I didn't really know the history at all. So by the 1980s, you were voicing support for Palestinian resistance and talking about Israel as, as a Goliath uh, in some of your writing. Probably. Um. <laughs> I don't remember. When, oh, I think I had, a, somebody put that, Israel is the Goliath and the Palestinians are David. Is that what I, yeah, I think I did that. And, that. and then uh, when, when, when the first Intifada started, you co-founded the Jewish Women's Committee to End the Occupation with uh, Grace Paley and Claire uh, Kinberg. Right. Um, and how, how did that group first come together? I was invited and I think 87, and it was before the Intifada. It was, it was an international women's writing conference. It wasn't Jewish, it was just women writing conference in Israel, in Jerusalem, and it was in the summer. And that conference could never have taken place four months later. It was really interesting because people came from Africa, they came from everywhere. And it was in, during that period, I think, that we met with some Palestinians, and we had and we had a kind of exchange. I wrote a long poem about it. Um, it was very moving, but it was it was very bracing also. And yeah, I learned a lot from. Them. I mean, I was very naive. I think when we started, I was I was not only naive; I was plain ignorant, and I had to really bone up and understand. Um, much more on a kind of visceral level by being there. I think going to Israel was really important and meeting people and talking. We talked endlessly. And um, um, one of the people interviewed in the tribe of Dina was Lil Moed. Lil Moed was a social worker who had retired. She was gay. She was a product of Workman's Circle and stuff like that. And she had a daughter who was in, uh, living in Israel. So she was spending six months there and six months here. She was kind of a political mentor to me for a certain period of time. And she came back right after the first Intifada started, which I think was December 87. And like in January or February, she came and she said, you know, there's these women. And I knew she named some of them, and Melanie and I had met them, so we, I knew who she was talking about. And most of them were lesbians or gay. She says, you know, there's these women that are protesting Dailaki Bush with with the women in black. Yeah. And so I said, well, we should support them. And I said, she said, yeah, you should. And so I called Claire and I called Grace Paley and um, they said, sure. And we got a whole bunch of other people and took out a statement. You know, it was, a, it was, you know, it was a normal for that time statement, two-state solution. We don't, you know. And so we started in New York as a kind of local organization. We had no intention of becoming a national organization. What we wanted was for people to form their own groups. We didn't insist that they call themselves JWCO. We purposely did not call ourselves Women in Black because we wanted here people to know that we were Jews that were doing this, that it was important to have Jews, the Jewish word in, in the name. 
But other places did. There was the Hannah Arendt Peace Patrol. There was, I mean, there were, you know, stuff like that. But it grew. And there were lots of, and then we did a letter. We did a, like a newsletter with contact numbers. We wanted people to connect. And to, so that if you went to a city, you would know they meet on this in this corner, on this in this day, every two weeks or every week or whatever. So we, it, wasn't, it wasn't intended. There was no party line. There was no anything like that. But it was basically to spread the word. And we were, I think we were very, very successful in that. And I think it, a lot of some of those groups, are still a few of them are still standing sometimes. But I thought, I, I'm very proud of that because I felt it wasn't like we headed anything and we didn't, it was, it was really to try to get other people to organize on their own local level and to, you know, for them to be conscious of what was going on in Israel and to publicize it to other people. And so to put on your reflecting goggles right now, or, or your looking back goggles, yeah. um, what do you think some of the big or the major differences are between the work that, between the work of the group that you were involved in back then and Jewish solidarity work that is happening around Palestine today? Well, I can't. I'm, I don't know that I'm as informed as I should be about what's going on today. Um, I mean, JWCEO was a very, um, it was a very local kind of organization. One of the things that we tried to do was to create a network without any officers or without any kind of um, ruling group, but just so that people could connect and either do larger things or smaller things or know what to do. And um, everything that's happening now is so much more amplified because of the internet, I mean, when we created JWCO, at first maybe 50 people knew about it. I mean, this time if somebody goes on an ICE, you know, uh, tries to stop an ICE office or whatever, you know, millions of people know it practically the next day. <laughs> you know, we had trouble just putting out a newsletter so that 10 people here and 5 people here and 15 people here could know about each other. <laughs> Never mind everybody else. But now what's happening is not only that these people know each other, everybody else knows about them. So I think it has a great, I think the impact is greater. I think people dismissed us as being not threatening. I mean, they could put us down and call us horrible names, but they didn't think that we were a threat in any way. But I don't think that's so true. I think these, I think these groups are threatening to the Jewish establishment. I think they're worried. I think Birthright is worried. I think all the main organizations are worried about I think probably Jewish heads of organizations are tearing their hair out about it. I mean, here's hoping. Yeah, here's hoping. <laughs> um, so I, I also want to talk about your time in New York in the 70s. <laughs> um, you know, like coming out as queer, as a lesbian woman in 1973, I imagine had a lot of different implications for what it means to be out in a lot of places today. Yeah. Um, and it was during this time that you wrote about tensions you're experiencing between existing both in, in sort of the queer feminist world, uh, but also in the Jewish world. And so what were the main tensions that came out of that period? Um, big surprise. The Jewish community was as homophobic as any other community. <laughs> Why should they be different? Um, so it was hard. I mean, it was, you know... I've always said that one of the luckiest things that happened to me was coming out in New York City at that time because New York City was just popping and it was bursting and there was all kinds of support and there was places, you know, there were 
everything was going. I mean, I, at the same time, you know, people have jobs or they have offices and they have families, and that's where a lot of the tension is. As much as everything is great, if you go to the firehouse for the lesbian meeting, you still have to face your family, you have to face other people and so on. I mean, I think I lost every single, um, I think within three or four years, I didn't have a single of the original straight friends that I had when I first came out. I just lost them. I mean, I, it wasn't anything vicious or horrible. They just just faded. Um, I had a lot of difficulties with my mother. She was very upset about it. And she did not like it, and she didn't like it for a really long time. Um, and I think in the Jewish community, I mean, I think it was there was just homophobia. I mean, I was I was very careful. I tried to be, you know. Um, I was closeted for some of the time, even though a lot of people knew, but it wasn't anything official. I never came out in an official way in, in those early, very early days. By the time I started editing Conditions Magazine, which was like around 78, 79, I didn't, couldn't, and I published my first book. It was very hard to stay in the closet. But there are people, you know, it's amazing what people can do in terms of not seeing what's right in front of them or even what's written right in front of them. They just deny it and you move on. Um, I was in a peculiar position with the com with the Jewish community because, I mean, I wrote about um, the Holocaust, and that was greatly respected, but at the same time, they couldn't put it together with this other parts of me. So um, it was a dilemma. They couldn't totally turn on me. But at the same time, they couldn't totally accept me either. So it was it was a dilemma, and it was um, and it was painful. It changed. I mean, it, we have close Canada. I mean, uh, if you should have seen the cabaret last night, <laughs> <laughs> um, too bad you didn't see it. It was really it was interesting. Yeah, for people who aren't familiar with this milieu, we should say it's like a particular <laughs> uh, representation of queer and trans yeah, folks here. Yeah. So. Um, it was a very, it was a difficult, painful period of transition for me. And it also made me realize, I think, that um, I had to step out in order to really do what I wanted. And I became increasingly more interested in the 80s, for example, in um, creating my own kind of Jewish Yiddish space so that I didn't really, I could do my research on Yiddish women, I could, you know, do my Jewish thing which mostly was around Yiddish and the Bund and secularism and that kind of thing. So, but it was still painful and it was, you know, and this also included people in the Bronx. I mean, these were people that I really admired and loved and felt like rooted with. And it's, it's hard to see their, their, they changed, eventually they changed. I mean, people do change, but when it's happening at the moment, it's very difficult. And it was. And at the same time, like I say, I was really lucky to be in New York because I had a poetry support group. I was able to publish. I was able to do conditions. You know, in the 70s and 80s, there were like five or six women's bookstores in New York City. I mean, it was amazing. There were, you know, lesbian bars I could go to, this coffee house I could sober up in. And, you know, it was like... <laughs> it was... It was That part of it was really great. It was very different than somebody in a small town coming out. But that other stuff was still there, you know. Can I ask you more about the positive part of that time, of, of sort of the day-to-day -day of being in that milieu in the 70s? Like, how did that shift to what exists now in New York City? Like, what, how have well, you Well, I that? don't go to, I mean, I'm too, I mean, I'm almost 80. <laughs> I'm 78, so 
Um, so I don't really know. But I mean, I used to go to, I didn't go, I wasn't like a big bar person, but I used to go to the Duchess, which was down at Christopher, what is it called, Christopher Square? What is that in New York City? You know, um, I would go down there and I would, at that time I would have some adjunct jobs. So I was always grading papers in the Duchess. And then and literally, and then I would go walk down the street and there was a coffee house and, and I had a support group I met, uh, Ellie Balkin and Jan Clausen. And my partner at the time, before in Conditions Magazine, so we felt we were doing something really constructive and something that we really believed in and we were going to change literature, and I think we did. Um, so for, for folks who aren't familiar with Conditions Magazine, like you are part of the Conditions Collective. and It was a magazine of women's writing. This took us weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Conditions, a magazine of women's writing with a special emphasis on lesbians. Weeks. <laughs> And we published, you know, we self-published our books. We had bookstores that supported and would, you know, I could go to the 8th Street bookstore or Women Books or whatever and put my books down there. We also, there was national distribution companies, women's distribution. There were various newspapers just in general in the country that so that books got reviewed. I mean, it was a system. It was a network and a system. So... I mean, I didn't feel, I never even attempted to, to publish with, um, you know, mainstream press. It was just, and I wasn't even inter- that interested in it. But, but what we did was we actually had a real audience. I mean, there were people that, in that lesbian world, and I'm saying lesbian because there was a lot of tensions between straight feminists and lesbians, and, and the Jewish lesbians and Jewish straight leaders. I mean, Betty Friedan didn't want to initially acknowledged that she was afraid that everybody would be labeled, you know, labeled a lesbian and the movement would go down over that, um, and lesbian were women haters, you know, this whole, whole shtick. Um, so it was very, um, it was exactly what I envied interwar Poland for. It really gave me that. It was energy we created. If something wasn't there, we said, we'll make it. That's what the Bund did. The Bund said, children are sick, we'll make a children's hospital. We'll make Madame Sanatorium. Children aren't educated, we'll make Schulis. They did. You know, I mean, every time, it was very parental in a certain kind of way. And the lesbian movement, I mean, and the, during that second wave for about 20 years was similarly. I mean, we, for example, it was known that because of the whole bar scene was the only scene that up until then anybody could go to, there was a lot of alcoholism in, among lesbians. So it was decided that these big national events, no alcohol. I mean, it was like taking care of and really trying to do something constructive, you know. So it was very exciting. And it felt like we were doing new things and that we were helping people and that we actually changed women's lives. And and the poetry readings were incredible. I mean, people like Judy Grant could bring 500 people to a reading. I mean, it was amazing how that... People who'd never read a single poem in their life and had no interest. I mean, these women just came. I mean, I, we did readings when I was first, before we published and with Jan and Ellie, we did these readings. We had a group called Seven Women Poets. We, weren't, we were out to each other, but not publicly, but we were all dykes. And um, we started just reading in bars and just announcing. But when we did a reading at the coffee house, God, it was overflowing. It was unbelievable because there were messages and there was a kind of assertion and it was very exciting and women responded to it. 
So by the 1980s, you carved out explicitly Jewish, lesbian, and feminist spaces. Um, nice Jewish Girls, a lesbian anthology, and Tribe of Dina, a Jewish women's anthology, were both published at this time. But we want to talk about Divir Dachayas. Um, when and how did that group come together? You know, it's, it's far more famous and well-known than, let's say, JWCO. And JWCO did much more than the Vilna Chayas. The Vilna Chayas came together. They were, it was Nancy Buriano, Bernice Menes, Gloria Greenfield, Melanie K. Kantowitz, Evie Beck, Adrian Rich, there were seven of us, and me. So we came, I don't remember how it came together exactly. It preceded still Nice Jewish Girls. I don't know who contacted whom first. I don't remember that, but we came together over the problem of what to do with the whole Israel issue. That I mean, collectives were breaking up, Jewish women were withdrawing from, from organizations that they had founded. There's a very, very, if you're ever interested in looking at what happened in the women's movement and the lesbian movement around Israel, you should read In Struggle, Yours in Struggle, which has an article by, um, has a thing by Barbara Smith, an African-American lesbian, Minnie Bruce Pratt about being a white Southern lesbian, and Ellie Balkin, who did, does an entire survey of what went on around Israel and Zionism, on magazines, on collectives. I mean, it was a breaking, it was one of those issues that just broke people up completely. Um, and so we met, I would say, maybe four times. The group was intended kind of almost like a little think tank or something. We were supposed to come up with something to try to defend or protect Jewish women and how they were being treated in lesbian organizations. We were totally ignorant. Let me be clear about that. We just did not know history. And some people were, Gloria identified as a Zionist. I didn't. Somebody else did. You know, it was like, it was all very emotional. And I think we were outraged at sort of the fierceness of the anti-Zionist towards some of these Zionist women. So we were going to fix this. <laughs> and in our ignorance, I don't remember, we, we, there were three statements and we were challenged with each one. And also they were all terribly mistimed and they appeared in Off Our Backs. I mean, Off Our Backs ended up with like sheets of these responses to these single statements. And it was sort of a total, um, it was a total mess. We made three statements, and by the third statement, Adrian had had it, we had had it. It wasn't getting us anywhere. Now, I think the reason it was famous was for a couple of reasons. Some of us were very visible, especially like Adrian, but the rest of us were becoming more visible, and Nice Jewish Girls was coming out. Some people knew Evie and so on. Gloria Greenfield had published a number of well-known writers, so she was known. So I think it made a splash just by the people who were in it. That was one thing. The other thing that I, I mean, people have, I've argued with people about this um, because I always try to play down the Vilde Chayas because I'm sort of embarrassed by it. And, but I think in reality, in terms of organizing, I think JWCO is much more important than the Vilde Chayas. So changing gears back to the present moment, 
we're, we're seeing far right and fascist movements rise to power all around the world right now. And you decided to travel back to Europe this year and, and two years ago as this is all happening. What are your reflections on being there at this time? Well, two years ago I went there, it was right after, it was like six months after Trump was elected. Uh, I got a lot of questions about Trump. And it wasn't like a deliberate kind of visit. I mean, I have to explain. I, I went to Poland for the first time in 1983, and I went with my mother. It was the 40th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and we didn't go exactly on the anniversary because she wanted to skip all the hoopla, so we went like a month later in June or something. And um, that was a very quick visit, which included Treblinka, and we went to lodge, and it was a week, you know, it was a, and it was a very difficult trip for her. She never went back. I went back a number of times um, for different things and for really quick visits. I would go to the cemetery. To, uh, my mother put up a stone for my father. It's not where he's buried, but she put up a stone for him. I would visit Gina's grave, and you know that was the visit, basically. I would see a couple of people maybe that were connected. It was just a few days. I went to the 100th anniversary of the Bond in, in 1997. They had a thing there, and Marek Edelman was there. And, um, but this was very different. So it was all about the past and my previous visits. They were only about the past, and the past was only the Holocaust, because there's, there's nothing you can visit, I mean, you know, because everything's gone. Um, this last time was, was instigated by a, a woman that has become a really close friend, my friend Gabby von Seltman. Gabby was sort of interested in my poetry, and it's a long story, but anyway, she got me to come two years ago. She arranged for some readings, and I came, and I had, in fact, three readings, and she also took me around. She and her husband drove me around Poland, and I saw all kinds of, I went to the very southern part, to Zakopane, where my parents met, which is about the only thing I could see. I wanted to see where they actually met that was still in existence. So I was seeing, and I was meeting a lot of Gabby's friends um, and people, and what I didn't know was that, that some of my poetry had been, had been translated into Polish. I mean, I just didn't know about it. Um, so I met some of the translators. So it was a very, it was a much more in the moment, I mean, let's, this is what Poland's going on. And of course, I was meeting a very specific bubble. <laughs> I was being placed into a very specific bubble that's very concerned about what the rest of Poland, what's happening in the rest of Poland. And it was like intensified this last time. I mean, just like here, the issues are exactly the same, it's a, but it's a smaller country and they feel it more quickly. And they feel it, in fact, quite immediately. There's an onslaught right now on the lesbian and gay community, on LGBT. The Catholic Church is determined to block out all the abuse stuff, and they have a new thing now. We used to be that the country was draped in red by the communists, and now we're being draped in the rainbow colors by the LGBT community. It is up front and totally out. They have LGBT-free towns. I mean, it's horrific. I was there actually, I was in Warsaw for the Gay Pride March, which was interesting. 80,000 people showed up. It was really remarkable that that happened in Warsaw. But it's, um, I, don't, I don't think these people should be forgotten who are working against the government. They're doing, a lot of them are, are you know, at various things. They, they talk about the Bund, they bring out Bund banners, they sing the Shrua in Yiddish. It's on YouTube, you can see it. I mean, it's very moving, and they're fighting a really difficult fight. 
and it's it's about everybody. It's not just about LGBT people. So um, I'm gonna I can't totally articulate what I feel because I have to really work it out in my head because it's a balance now of sort of the past and the present, and. I'm very moved by these people and by sort of by both the fact that they have memory and by the fact that they're fighting the good fight. I mean, it it is very moving. But it's not, I mean, it's everything. Climate change, women's abortion, judgeships. I mean, it's everything that we're facing here. Except like I say, it's it's so in, it's such a smaller country. Um, so it's been an interesting sort of very different I mean, it's not obviously not that I've forgotten the past, but it's a different experience. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the difficulty of sort of relating the past to the present moment in that context, and it just makes me think of the fact, like I know you recently retired from teaching, um, but it makes me think about what it means to teach Jewish history in this current political moment. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. Teaching history, period. <laughs> American students are very weak on history. It's not their fault. It's the educational system's fault, but it's very depressing. And Jewish, I think, education on history is horrendous. I, I know I'm making a generalization, and I know that there are exceptions, but I really believe it's a, the generalization is true and that the exceptions are few. I will give an example of um, a lot of my students had a class of 12. A lot of my students were... Um, very much interested and have read a great deal about the Holocaust. And I once asked students to just write down on a piece of paper when World War II began. What was the event and the year that started World War II? And not a single student in that class knew. And they were mixed of Jewish education, American education, and there was a mixture. It was mostly Jewish students, but there were at least two or three non-Jewish students in the room. Nobody knew. And it's just appalling. <laughs> what can I say? It's appalling. Um, nor did they even know which was the community that was most mostly decimated. One student hesitantly said Poland, and, but nobody else even had a clue. So it's, you know, I have to say that one thing I really miss about teaching, I don't miss a lot of it, I mean, in the sense of I've never liked grading students and I've always enjoyed engaging with them and so on. I do feel like this is a moment that I wish I were engaged with younger people because I think it's an interesting. We always, I always in my classes, um, we always did a newspaper article every morning, every class session, a different student would bring in something that had to do with Jewish women. It could be from a contemporary article, and it always flowed into whatever, you know, contemporary issues. So I miss that. And it was like when I think back to me when I was so ignorant, when we did the Vilda Hayes and stuff, and what I had to do. But it takes work, and people don't, you know, it takes effort and work. And At, at the beginning of our conversation, you, you mentioned a quote that I found very, very powerful, um, that catastrophe erases everything, other than the catastrophe itself. And I was actually blown away. I, I don't know if that was apparent in my uh, face, mm. but um, I'm wondering how that insight has informed teaching and your work, because, I mean, it's so clear with the Holocaust and the history of Jewish life in Eastern Europe, um, and maybe we could just stick in that domain. But, but how, mm. how has that impacted how you've done your work? Let me just attribute that because it blew me away, too, when I first read it. I read it in Kassau's book, Who Will Write Our History? 
The book is about Ringo Bloom's Onik Shabbos archive, that he documented Jewish life in the Warsaw Ghetto and that they buried and they recovered some of it and some of it didn't. And one of the things that Kassau says at the beginning of the book about regarding Ringo Bloom or Ringo Bloom's philosophy, Ringo Bloom really wanted the Germans to be accountable what happened in the... And this is still before they knew about the extermination. I mean, they didn't know that how it was going to end yet, though they did find out. And so he wanted to document Jewish life in the ghetto so that Germans could be accountable for it afterwards. And so he had like 30, 40 people running around the ghetto doing interviews on every aspect you can think of. But when they realized that they were planning, in fact, the liquidation of the whole, of the whole thing... Kassar wrote that even then, Ringelblum insisted on continuing precisely because he felt that once the catastrophe happened, everything before it would be erased. And I was very struck, I mean, like you, I was very struck by that perception. And it's one of the things I think about at the Bundes that I grew up with, that they didn't allow that to happen, that they... As much as they mourned, and sometimes I think they overdid it, I'm critical looking back at some of the things that they did. But at the same time, they did not forget their life in interwar Poland. And that's to me, it was like a gift. And it's interesting because when I was teaching, for example, one of the books I taught was Helen Epstein. Helen Epstein is known for Children of the Holocaust. It's the book of 1979. It really blew open the, the whole thing about writing about Holocaust survivors. And this was about not children who had survived, but children of Holocaust survivors and how they experienced uh, their parents' trauma and experiences. And she wrote a book called Where She Came From, where she does it was after Children of the Holocaust, about 20 years later. And it was basically about um, the matrilineal, she was, her parents were Czech Jews, and she wanted to do a matrilineal history of her mother's family and going back to her great-grandmother. And it covered also Francie, that's her mother's, Francie's uh, war years. And it ends with the birth of Helen when they come to the United States, or right before they come to the United States. And whenever I've taught the book, the only thing that my students want to talk about is the end, Francie's um, war years. And it's very frustrating. I mean, it's like this, and then they, and they complain, like, why do we have to <laughs> Well, and so there's a kind of resistance, and I think it's really, I think it's, I think mourning six million without having a clue who they were, where they came from, what their lives are like, is meaningless. I really believe it's meaningless. You have to know what you're mourning. And there's a real resistance. I don't know what it's about. I mean, I, somebody who's maybe a psychologist can talk about it better. <laughs> But I, I just, even the focus on camps is wrong because the majority of Jews didn't die in camps. People don't know anything about ghettos. I mean, or people passing. Or what happened to the Polish, I mean, the most of the Polish Jews survived that survived in the Soviet Union. They didn't survive in Poland. I mean, so it's very complicated. And I'm very, I was very conscious of it, teaching it. Um, it's a problem. It's a real problem. And in the, I, there's something false about it that bothers me tremendously. Yeah. I mean, I went to secular Jewish school for 1 to grade 6 and then 7 to 11. We learned the Holocaust every year. I learned 
bupkis, as, as my father would say, about Jewish life in Eastern Europe. Before mm. the Holocaust, like I, I was every year was the Holocaust and there was never real engagement with anything that happened before. And it, I, I think it's such a, it did such a disservice to all of us. But I have to say, and I don't know if it's, I mean, to what degree, whether this is an unconscious thing, but I do think some of it is, in fact, a leftover of kind of Zionist philosophy that nothing really was good before 1948. And if nothing was good, then there's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to remember. And, you know, I don't know if it's all of it. But I, I also see, I mean, I, when you go into a bookstore and, do, and you look at Judaica, for example, look at the bookstore. The majority of the books are either on Israel or the Holocaust. Those are the two main topics of books. And that's a shame. I mean, because, I mean, there is this incredibly rich history. And also you should know what was destroyed. And what was possible. I think that's one of the things that the Bund did was to show what was possible. So in terms of uh, giving more depth to what life was like before, specifically in, in the Bundes milieu, something that was a fairly central part, from my understanding, of the Bund was its conception of secular cultural Jewish identity. Um, you know, you're a secular Jew. We're also secular Jews. Um, uh, Sam actually attended uh, Jewish People's Public School in Montreal, which was a secular institution founded by Bundes, I believe. But the new generation of Jewish leftists in the U.S. seems to have less of an interest in explicitly secular Jewish life. Than yeah. that. Um, is this a trend that you've noticed? And, and what is your take on, on why that's happening? Well, first of all, I mean, I had I, I was amazed that some of my students just could not conceive of somebody being a secular Jew. I mean, I think the thing is that being a secular Jew in a committed, conscious way, not just by default or by absence, but rather with content, is hard work. I mean, you have to work on it. It's not like you have a synagogue to walk into. You know, it's not like there's an institution that you can walk in. There are institutions. I mean, if you're lucky in New York, you can walk into Evo, but Evo is not proselytizing for secularism. Evo is a resource. And I think that anything that's hard work (laughs) and that takes a certain amount of time and education is going to be avoided. Because you can, if you... you are observant. You can even if you you can go almost to any synagogue. It might not be of the synagogue of your liking, but you can still go to a synagogue. And especially if you're in remoter places that don't have all these resources and don't have the films. And on the other hand, I feel like when you come to some place like Class Canada or what I experienced 20 years ago at Class Camp, you saw people who had never spoken Yiddish, did not who made the effort to learn more, not just about the language, but to learn more about the culture, more about Eastern European life, and they become really important resources at this point. But it is hard work, I think, and probably getting harder. So I I don't remember where I read it, but it might have been an old interview where you had mentioned the challenge of negotiating religion in the women's movement as a sort of recurring topic of conversation during a period of time. During that period of time. Um, yeah. And what were the lessons around secularism that you learned from that time in those conversations? Well, you know, first of all, I had to learn to respect religious people. And I, I say that because I really, I was very flippant. I was very, very flippant about religious. I, mean, I, I always talk about that when I was growing up as a kid, when we first came to the United States, I thought these Jewish Americans were really bizarre. I mean, they 
they went to synagogue. I mean, <laughs> who goes to synagogue? <laughs> I just thought it was weird. Um, and that sort of, you know, that kind of flippancy. When I became active and I wanted to, to influence and be effective, I had to learn, first of all, I had to learn more about the religion. And I had to understand, you know, sort of the needs of religious women that were in the movement. So I had to, I mean, there was tension around that, but I think we dealt with it, you know. I mean, there, it would, things sometimes would flare up, but I think most of us were determined, I think, to to sort of bridge the gap. Um, it didn't always work. I mean, when you have, for example, there was a conference, I can't remember now, this was a number of years ago, there was a conference that wanted to invite women from the Hasidic community, but they didn't want to put any lesbians on the panel because these women would be offended. Now, that, that kind of thing can become a big deal. But like in the women's studies, for example, which is where I did a lot of, most of my interactions with observant, more observant women, that was educational for me. And also for when I was teaching, for example, I had quite a bit of respect for my observant Orthodox women who listened to these, you know, feminists, <laughs> their fellow students talking about feminism in certain ways and talking about men in certain ways. And then they would go home and face their families. I thought that took guts, you know. I didn't. I wouldn't. Didn't, that took much more guts than the, you know, the women who were the ardent feminists in the class. So um, I've modified. I mean, I did grow up with a real prejudice against religion, and I think to some degree I still have it. But at the same time, I have to respect the fact that there are intelligent, well-meaning people who, you know, believe it. And I can't get around that. And if I want them on my side, I have to treat them with respect and with knowledge and not be ignorant um, in the same way that I would like other people to be respectful of me and not be ignorant about who I am. So you're here in the Laurentians at Clez Canada for a week-long poetry workshop. Um, in an old interview, you said that activists need to think more like poets in order to parse out the ways that different forms of oppression relate to each other. And mm. in this current political moment, which we've chatted about already, what do you see as the role of poetry right now? It's a really good question because I don't really, I mean, it was, it's, the role of poetry in the women's movement during the second wave was just so important and so visible. Um, and I don't, I have to say, I mean, I feel a little bit out of it in, in many ways, but especially I don't really understand the Internet yet. I don't understand what people are listening to or podcasts or whatever. I mean, I do Facebook, but it seems very limited. Um, so I'm still kind of learning, and I don't really know. I mean, I think about it in terms of myself as well, about what I want to write about, and I think about it in terms of my time, what I want to spend my time on and like do I want to go out and do something on the street or do I want to stay home solitary and work on some of my writing I mean that's that's always a question I mean I um I don't really know the answer to that I feel like the mediums have changed so drastically even publishing is just alien at this point to me um that 
I don't know. I mean, I know that I can only do what I know how to do, how that fits into this. And I can only do what I've done. I don't feel like my process of writing, for example, or even the kind of poetry I can write, I can't, I'm not interested in adapting myself to anything. I want to try to sharpen whatever I have and do that. But where that fits in even, whether it's even publish I mean and what does it mean to publish these days I don't really know and that's something I guess um, I've, I have to learn or I'll find out so in, in Dreams of an Insomniac your, your essay collection from I think it was the early 90s yeah um, there was this section where you were writing about sort of feeling guilty for straying away from your your poetry and your arts practice and that the essays sort of came out of this parallel process, which is more rooted in your activism. Mm -hmm. Do you still kind of feel that tension between those two? I do. I do. I have to say I've always, I've never gotten over that. I just, I always feel like there's, you know, (laughs) I, I can't explain it. I always think of a project that I should do after I've decided that I'm really going to work on something. And then I think of this other project that's really not a creative kind of writing project, but that's more a political project. And I'm, I'm just torn sometimes. Um, I don't know that I'll ever stop. My late partner, my partner was a painter, and she was always trying to pull me back to my own work. And now she's not around, but um, I think about that a lot. Uh, and I get, I mean, even now in the last few, just the last couple of years, I've written in, like, I wrote a couple of speeches, I wrote a long review, I wrote a long keynote, um, and those were all externally asked, you know, while I was thinking about working on some other stuff. So, but I thought it was important to do that, and um, and it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. I don't. I haven't really resolved it. I think it just is very. Even doing something like Clits Canada, I mean, to some degree, the poetry is something I really enjoy. I love doing poetry workshops. I love reading other you know, people's work, talking about it. It's one of my favorite things, and I think I'm good at it. But like the, write, the Yiddish Women Writers Workshop was like my cause. I mean, that was like, I don't like to lose opportunities to promote Yiddish Women Writers. So that took more time. So that's that's how I get pulled in because I think, oh, this will be a good way to spread the word. <laughs> and so then I start thinking about doing that. So it's always a it's a tension within me that I'm like I say, and maybe I'll never resolve it. Maybe I'll just bounce around it in some weird way. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the Bund. And um, you know, the last world conference of the Bund was I think in nineteen ninety two in New York City. And the Boone's paper, or at least the Boone's U.S. paper, uh, stopped publishing in 2005. Um, and in the mid-'80s, you wrote an essay where you talked about watching the secular Yiddish environment become smaller and smaller, are the, are the words you used yeah. then. Um, you wrote, generations pass, institutions die. This is part of a natural evolution and cycle. But for a culture to survive, its losses must be replaced. Um, so we're sitting here, I think, over 30 years since that reflection. And from today's vantage point, I'm just wondering uh, if you think that the losses are being replaced. Well, I mean, to some degree, yes. For example, the YIVO is thriving. The Jewish Center for History in, in New York is thriving. 
But on the other hand, I mean, I think that the statement is maybe too literal in a way. They do have to be replaced, but they can't be the same thing, you know? So I think they have to maybe reinvent it in this new way because we're living in a different time, we're living in a different continent, we're living in a different external culture. How we respond to that culture and what our relationship is to that culture is different than it was in Poland and, you know, Poles and Jews. And I do think that's happening. I don't know, you know, one of the things I've stopped, you know, when I first became interested in Yiddish again, sort of, when I... From that time on, people have been asking me whether it's dying or dead or whatever. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> and it almost doesn't matter to me. I think, that, I think that's the point, that we should do what we really believe, and we shouldn't really look to see if it's going to be there 50 years from now or if it's going to touch 50,000, 50 million people. And I say this knowing what I know about the Bund, that the Bund was started with 13 people in a crummy attic in Vilna, and it became a mass movement. And I know it from my own experience of what happened with, in the lesbian feminist movement and the women's movement. Somebody like Gloria Anzaldúa, who's now being taught in women's studies classes, Audrey Lord, who's being taught in women's studies classes. And we started, you know, Conditions and Persephone Press Kitchen Table, this bridge called My Back. I mean, those were started by two or three people, you know, and it's sort of amazing what happened and who would have predicted it. I didn't, I, they didn't predict it, they just wanted to do it. They wanted to publish something, so they did. And so I think looking at numbers or looking at that, it's sort of, I leave it to other people. I'm sort of not interested in it, and I don't mean that in a snobby way. I'm just saying that I think that if you told me that this movement is going to die like 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I'd still do what I want to do, you know? I mean, it wouldn't stop me because that's the only thing I want to do or, or know how to do. And I don't really totally believe that's going to die in 20 years. Or if it does, that it won't be rediscovered. And why should I just stop? Like, Kles Camp closed, and now there's Yiddish New York, and there's Kles Canada. So, I mean, it's not the same thing as Kles Camp, but it's, it's a kind of continuation of something. So, David and I have a segment on our radio show slash podcast, and it's called Shkoyach. Oh, Shakoya, yeah. So we're, we give like a, a big ups or a congratulations. Yeah, so we, we also have a negative one, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for hope here. Um, so do you have any Shkoya off the top of your head for something that gives you hope or is exciting to you right now? It could be a person, a place, a, a book. Well, I mean, I'm, I was very impressed with the Never Again Is Now actions. I mean, wherever they went, altogether, I think, the immigrant, or some of the responses to the immigration um, and the dedication is really extraordinary. It's very, it, it's inspiring, I mean, in many ways. It's, um, it's painful because it's, there's something about it that, because it references the Holocaust and it kind of, at the same time, it wants to stop things from happening like in Holocaust, and it's very moving from that point of view. And it's very young people. I very much admired the people that went um, um, went on the birthrights and um, interrupted them, 
the trips and insisted on asking questions and then were forced off. I think that was just great. I think, I, th I have to say, I think there is, I think there's, it's not only anti-Zionism. I think it's a general, that there's a very young generation now, and I don't know where they are culturally or secularly, but I think politically that they have stopped being afraid of the Jewish establishment and they have refused to accept what they're being told. And they're challenging. And that, I think, is just wonderful because they don't want to say the Holocaust is untouchable and you can't compare anything and blah, you know, that. And they don't want to say, you can't let me talk about Palestinians, you know, I'm going to talk about them. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be silenced. And I think that that trend. I don't know if it's a trend. I mean, it's, I can only. I only know what I'm reading. Um, but if it is a trend, it's a really good one, and it means I think a real shakeup in American Jewry, and because that younger generation is tired of the bullshit, and they're tired of not being able to penetrate through, and I think. I think the establishment should be worried because they have penetrated through. People know about them. People know what they stand for. People know what never again means. Um, and I think that's an attitude. It's not even the specific issue. It's an attitude about how you approach issues. And I think that's great. <laughs> Well, on the note of uh, being tired of bullshit, I know we have kept you longer than we said we were going to keep you. Um, but Irina, it was it was so lovely to meet you um, and well, to get to talk you. today. Well, you know, your audience doesn't know about the Mohammed in the mountain, but <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It was it was uh, I think a year and a half of us corresponding to make this happen, so it was uh, a big payoff. <laughs> well, I'm glad we finally did it. It was really wonderful to meet you. Thank you for coming and taking the time. I appreciate it. Let me know when it goes on the air. So that's our episode for today. Uh, thanks as always for listening to the show. A small correction, uh, I mentioned during our conversation that the secular Yiddish school that Sam went to, it's technically called the Jewish People's Schools and Parrot Schools in Montreal. I said it was founded by Bundes, but according to Wikipedia, it was founded by a coalition of socialists and labor Zionists in 1910, and it wasn't until 1914 that the Bundes faction gained control. And that is why you come to the Trafe podcast, for this kind of thoroughness and uh, attention to detail. Yeah, please uh, deflect all hate mail <laughs> related to that assertion. For everything else, I guess, just check out the show notes. Yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground in the interview, referenced a lot of things. Uh, if you're interested in reading more about it, you know, the show notes will have links for most of the things that we referenced. Trafe podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we generally record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks as always to Sack Syndrome and So-Called for the music you heard in the episode uh, and to everyone who helps make Trafe podcast happen. You can follow us on all the social medias at Trafe Podcast, T-R-E-Y-F. That would include Facebook.com, Twitter.com, and Instagram.com. And you can always send us comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. 
Shout out to the person who sent us a nice piece of hate mail, which by the way, doesn't count as hate mail. I think it's just a nice email. Yeah, thank you for that. And that's it. More episodes soon.